Now, even though we've sung that hymn, I recognize that most of you probably didn't know it, but I thought you did well. And if you didn't notice, you were singing about the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. That's the point. We are beginning this morning, and I'm very excited about it, an exposition of the pastoral epistles. Now, I'm extremely excited about getting to 2 Timothy, but that's going to be last. So I hope that my own personal enjoyment of these epistles uh, will even show the more when we get to that epistle, which I'm so longing to, to get to. Now, we are expository preachers here. When we're dealing with narrative, and we have been dealing with narrative a great deal lately, we can retell the narrative and we can focus on a verse here or there to make certain points. When we come, however, to epistles, you really have to think. You have to follow Paul's argument. Why did he use this word and not another word? Why this phrase and not another phrase? What's the connection of this word with that word? You really have to think. So we'll be in the pastoral epistles a very long time, and I hope by the end of the sermon you can see why it is so extremely important that we spend our time in 1 Timothy, Titus, and 2 Timothy in order of writing. We turn then to 1 Timothy, and all we can do this morning is introduce the pastorals, and we will focus together on the first two verses, 1 Timothy chapter 1. Will you bow with me in prayer? Almighty God and our Father in heaven, we ask that the Holy Spirit, who has given to us this word by divine inspiration, will also now illumine its page and through the Spirit of God grant us understanding, intellectual understanding, but also, Father, understanding way down deep in the affection, so that we are changed and transformed by what we hear read and preached and expounded. Give to your people an earnest desire to know the Bible, to know your word, and to put the energy and effort required into understanding the text. And so, as we begin the pastoral epistles, we ask that the great shepherd of the sheep would pastor these, your people, through the exposition of Holy Scripture, and that those who are outside the fold might be brought in by faith in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. 1 Timothy chapter 1, the first two verses. This is the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. People of God, from the very beginning, the Christian church has been pressured, sometimes immensely pressured, to compromise with the world, and especially to compromise the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ, what Chalmers called the great particularities of the gospel. The church is called to be separate from the world, distinct, alert, and vigilant with regard to the truth. And that is Paul's concern in the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, in order of writing. Now, most all of us at one time or another in our lives, in childhood, perhaps on a track team, at least we've been spectators of relay races, haven't we? 
You know what it's like to participate or to watch a relay race. Well, that's really what's happening here in 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus. Paul the Apostle will soon pass from the scene. He wants to be sure that men are in place to pass on the good deposit, that the church is well instructed and prepared for the onslaught against the Bible and against the gospel that already has come in Paul's day and will only get worse as time goes by. Paul is passing the torch to young Timothy as Paul comes to the very end of his life and the end of his ministry. The New Testament never expects an an easy time for the church of Jesus Christ. Rather, the opposite. And these epistles help us to develop theological and moral conviction. Though written by Paul to young pastors, Timothy and Titus, they are God's word. And it is clear that the Apostle Paul, although writing to these young pastors, intended these epistles to be read also by us. He knows as an apostle that he's writing by divine inspiration, that these epistles are God's word. And I wonder if you have ever noticed as you come to the end of the epistle or have ever investigated that where we have the benedictions at the end, the benedictions are in the plural. Grace be to you, that's plural. So he intends these epistles to be a guide to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until Jesus Christ comes again as we continue to pass the torch from generation to generation. Now let's begin, first of all, by seeing Paul, the apostle who is passing the torch. And for that, we're going to look line by line at verse 1. Look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Paul, his very name should thrill us as Christians, associated as it is with vital Christianity. Paul, of course, was his Roman name. It was not uncommon for a Hebrew to have also a Roman name, his Hebrew name being Saul. His name in Greek or in the Latin means small. I rather like that. And, you know, you can read in various epistles of Paul that uh, sometimes he was not thought well of by the so-called super-apostles because, frankly, Paul was not much to look at. We have something of his autobiography, however, in the book of Philippians, in which in chapter 3 we read these words. Although I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness under the law, blameless. This was Saul of Tarsus before he became the great apostle to the Gentiles, before he knew Jesus. He was an Orthodox Jew, he was a zealous Pharisee, and he was a persecutor of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember, don't you, that in the book of Acts in the seventh chapter, that when Stephen, the first martyr, was killed, that it was Paul, Saul of Tarsus, it was Paul who held the coats of those who stoned him. And then we read on in Acts chapter 8, Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house, and he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. He hated Christ, he hated the gospel, he hated the church. But then something happened. To use the words of A.T. Robertson, against his own wish and plan, 
Paul was seized and turned around. That is so well put. Against his own wish, against his own plan, Paul was seized by the Lord Jesus Christ on the Damascus Road. Jesus Christ, the bodily risen Lord, showed himself to Saul of Tarsus and his life was completely revolutionized. For you see, Jesus Christ is not in a grave. Jesus Christ has been raised by the power of the Father from the dead and he lives and he met Paul the Apostle. And there is no other explanation that is possible for the transformation in the life of Paul but that this man, this Pharisee, this careful reasoner, this hater of Christ, this despiser of the church met Jesus Christ bodily risen on the Damascus road. This always thrills my soul. And as we have sung in the hymn this morning, the Lord that can do that to Paul can do that also for you. He can transform your life and save you from your sins. And then this risen Christ commissioned Paul that he might be an apostle to the nations, to the Gentiles, and we find him tirelessly preaching Christ crucified and risen from the dead, being stoned and shipwrecked and giving his entire life now to serve the church that he once despised and to glorify the Lord that he once had hated. So you see the significance of this when he says, Paul, look at verse 1, an apostle of Christ Jesus. For Paul now is an apostle. Apostello means I send. An apostle is a sent one. He now is an apostle of Christ Jesus. Now, the word apostle is used in the New Testament with elasticity. Sometimes it's used in a broad sense, those who are apostles of the churches. But here we don't mean that. We mean apostle in the narrower sense, that he is an apostle of Christ Jesus. The apostle Paul then was an apostle in the same sense that the twelve were apostles. Now, in order to be an apostle in this narrower sense, one must first of all have been an eyewitness of the risen Christ. Then, he must have a commission directly from Christ. He also must be specially endued with the Holy Spirit as God would lead the church through their instruction into all truth, as Jesus promised in John 14 and John 15 to his disciples. He must also have a ministry that is confirmed by signs and wonders, which was true of Paul. He says in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of an apostle were done among you. And the ministry of these apostles was completely foundational for the New Covenant Church. So we read in Ephesians chapter 2.20 that the church is founded upon, based upon the foundation of the prophets and of the apostles. Well, don't you see the concern here? He's an apostle, and yet soon he's no longer going to be here, and the other apostles will not, no longer be here. They're foundational. When you have a foundation, you don't continue the foundation all the way up onto the roof. You build on the foundation. So Paul is not going to be here. The other apostles will no longer be here, and he has this deep and earnest concern of passing down the truth to faithful men who will continue to preach. Did you notice here, by the way, the order in which he speaks of his apostleship that he received from the Lord? Look at it. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, and the order is important. Homer Kent, in his commentary on this book, says, When Christ saw the risen Lord, he learned 
that the Christ in glory was the same historic Jesus. With the other disciples, the process was reversed. They became acquainted with the historic Jesus of Nazareth and later learned to recognize him as the Christ. Consequently, John, Peter, and James used the order Jesus Christ more frequently. But Paul, especially in his later epistles, shows a definite preference for the name Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul uses the term Christ Jesus, speaks of Christ in that order, because he met the Messiah and realized this Messiah was the historic Jesus whom he had been opposing. Paul met Jesus the Christ and recognized him as the incarnate Lord. And then he adds this, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. And this word command, epitage, is used often, most often, of royal commands. And so he says, I've received this royal command to apostleship from the hand of the risen Lord. Someone has translated it, by order of. He had received his apostleship by order of. Timothy then, to whom he writes this letter must hear from this apostle that this one who is writing to him is an apostle in this special sense by the command of God himself. This letter, Timothy, is God's word. I write as an apostle. I write by God's command. I serve by God's command. You need to pay attention to this authority right as we begin the epistle. And then he says, and it will help if you look at the words, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior, and Christ Jesus our hope. God our Savior, Christ Jesus our hope. God and Christ inseparable, spoken in the same breath, because Jesus is the second person of the Trinity who is co-equal with the Father. It seems that there was an attack upon the deity of Christ, and he begins to speak of this right at the first of his epistle. He speaks of God as Savior rich in Old Testament background. You remember Isaiah 43, 11, I, I am the Lord, and beside me there is no Savior. He speaks of Christ Jesus, our hope, speaking of that blessed future that God gives to his people so that in the midst of all of the turmoil that Timothy will know in Ephesus and that we know in the world in which we live, we can know that we live hope-filled lives because we have a Savior who has secured for us an undefiled and unfading inheritance. Now in Titus, the apostle actually brings these two things together of the Lord Jesus Christ when he says in Titus 2.13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, calling him Savior and speaking of that hope as he does here in 1 Timothy 1. By the way, is there someone here as we speak the word Savior who can see within his heart that you need saving? Is there someone here this morning as you even hear the word hope that can say, as I look in my life and I look in my heart, I have no hope. I have a hopeless life. We direct you to Jesus. Jesus Christ, God, our Savior, who gives to his people a blessed hope and fills the lives of God's people with promise. So as you read along, note Paul's emphases. You can discern something about the false doctrine that he's going to to write against. 
that concerns him in these epistles. These are essential issues. These are not peripheral matters. These are not issues upon which Christians may rightly differ. They relate to the doctrine of God, the person of Christ, the work of Christ. And already in the very first verse, he indicates that he's going to be writing about God our Savior, Christ Jesus, and he's speaking about these things that are of eternal weight and consequence. So we read these things, don't we? And we tend to read the opening of an epistle and we just slip through them. We don't pay much attention to the words. That's a grave mistake. I can tell you Timothy wouldn't have done that. Timothy would have taken this letter and he would have read every word over and over again and he would have thought with the Apostle Paul, why this word, not that? What's the connection? What is Paul saying to me? How can I even read between the lines? How is this going to help me to be the minister that God is calling me to be and the Christian that God is calling me to be? Never slip over these things, follow the reasoning. And so as we read what the Apostle has said about himself, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. Let's ask this question. What is Paul doing? Well, what Paul is doing is, in the very first verse, stressing his authority. And why is he stressing his authority? Well, look at verse 3, and I'll show you why. In verse 3 we read, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. The Apostle Paul then has gone on to Macedonia. He has left this pastor, let me emphasize this young man, this young pastor, this young timid pastor, he has to compel him to stay there in Ephesus, this wicked city in which there is a church that's a wreck. It is a doctrinal and moral mess. He's left Timothy in Ephesus to straighten out this tremendous conflict in the church. Now, I want to remind you that the Apostle Paul spent three years establishing this church in Ephesus. Night and day with tears, he proclaimed the gospel to these people. And you remember what he said to the Ephesian elders the last time he saw them? We read it in Acts 20. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, he says to the elders. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know, says Paul, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. So that's what he says. He spends three years building up this church, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he says to the elders, I know that after my departure, ravening wolves are going to come in. And yes, also within your own midst, men are going to arise who will teach twisted doctrine contrary to what I have proclaimed to you. Well, that's why he's stressing authority here. Because Timothy, this young pastor, is left there, and there are all of these doctrinal and moral aberrations, and he's a pastor, and it's a mess, and he needs to be able to say to the people that he pastors, look, I'm just saying to you what Paul said to you. (laughs) 
I'm just saying to you what the apostle to the Gentiles has preached to you. I'm simply doing what Paul himself would do were he here. I'm simply speaking on the authority of another. I'm speaking the word of God as it has been given to us by Paul the apostle. Now the apostle Paul has already dealt with some of the things there. He's already had to remove two leaders in the church. Look here in chapter 1 of 1 Timothy, beginning in verse 18. Uh, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously uh, made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Already there are two leaders in the church, Hymenaeus and Alexander, who have made shipwreck of the faith. Isn't that a graphic description? Can't you see the ship on the rocks, the water pouring in, men drowning, death dying all around? They have made shipwreck of their faith because they did not follow my instructions and heed the gospel that I have preached there in Ephesus. I've already started the process, Timothy, and by my authority, you need to continue it on, and you need to see that this mess is straightened out. Turn to chapter 4. Notice how the apostle speaks about this heresy. In chapter 4, the first three verses, the apostle says to this young pastor, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth." You see, he says, in the latter days, this is what is going to happen. We already see it happening here in Ephesus. People with this kind of rigid asceticism who deny the faith. And did you notice from where this comes? Now, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. You look around in the church today and you say, why this error? Why that error? We're talking about serious, soul-damning error here. Denial of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And do you take it seriously? I would say that most Christians don't. Paul says you'd better, because do you know what the source of these errors? The source of these errors are demons, deceitful spirits. It is demonically inspired. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ from its inception until Christ comes again is in a position in which we are called to be vigilant and to defend the truth and we are to be alert to the fact that in every generation there will be demonically inspired false doctrine brought into the church that leads also to demonically inspired false living. You'd better be concerned with it. If not, we're wasting our time. This is what the pastoral epistles and large swaths of the New Testament are all about. 
Because Jesus tells us in the 8th chapter of John's Gospel that the devil is a liar. He's a liar. And he brings lies into the church. And men begin to deviate from the Word of God and deviate from Orthodox Christianity. And it's all in the source of the satanic and the demonic. And this letter that he writes by divine inspiration, emphasizing his authority from the start, he says to us this, look, these letters will function for the church until Christ comes again. Among us, they will function just as they did for first for Timothy and for Titus. Here's what God's Word says. Here's the teaching of the truth. Passing on the torch... So as he passes on the torch to Timothy, what does he leave? He passes on the torch and he leaves divinely inspired epistles that you and I are required to study and know. Do you? Are you beginning to see something of the significance of the pastoral epistles? Well, there's more. Second thing we see. We've seen Paul, the one who passes on the torch. Now let's look for a few moments at Timothy, the one to whom the torch is passed. Timothy's name means one who honors God. He was taught the scripture we will later learn from childhood by his mother and his grandmother. Get that, moms and grandmoms. How often do we find that godly men are in the hand of the Holy Spirit, the product of of mothers who are godly and uncompromising in the faith. 2 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. He was a protege of Paul, this man Timothy, a, a lieutenant, if you will. And in 1 Corinthians, in the fourth chapter, in verses 16 and 17, he speaks of him this way. I urge you then to be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child in the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. Paul says, I want you to imitate me. That's why I'm sending Timothy. Because Timothy is such a disciple that what he teaches is what I teach, what he says is what I say, the way he would deal with an error is the way I would deal with an error, the way he encourages is the way I encourage, that's Timothy. He was converted under Paul's ministry at Lystra in Acts 16. But here in 1 Timothy 1, notice how the apostle speaks of him in verse 2. To Timothy, my true child in the faith. Now, there are various words for sons, daughters, children in the New Testament. The word that is used here is a common word, technon. But it's significant in this place because technon comes from the verb ticto, which means to beget. So he's saying, Timothy is one that the Spirit of God has so used my ministry in his life that he is my spiritually begotten. I have given spiritual birth in a way subordinate to God to this young man, Timothy. 
But he also says to him, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, genesios, is a word that means legitimate. True, genuine. He is my true, genuine, legitimate son in the faith, this young man, Timothy. Calvin points out that though God alone is Father who regenerates, yet ministers have a subordinate right to this title. In other words, he's saying, this is my true son, my real disciple, who has imbibed my teaching and has become like me. And Timothy was the genuine article. As William Hendrickson puts it, Timothy was no Demas. You remember Demas? Paul says, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world. Not Timothy. Timothy hasn't forsaken. Timothy is faithful. So he's put Timothy here in Ephesus, this wicked city, with this church that's a mess. What does he want for him? Verse 2, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus our Lord. What does he want for him? He wants him to know the grace of God. God's undeserved favor to the ill-deserving sinner. He wants him to know the mercy of the Lord that frees from misery and that mercy that continues to function in our life that sets us free from sin and free from the misery as a result of our rebellion against God. And as a result of grace and mercy, he wants him to have peace, to know that he's reconciled with God and to know that he can have peace within his own heart and conscience. Because if this young man, Timothy, is going to address false doctrine, he needs grace, mercy, and peace. If this young man, Timothy, is going to pastor this flock with all of its many problems, he needs grace, mercy, and peace. If this young man, Timothy, is going to deal with these heretics who are tearing the people of God apart and speaking those things that are not true then he needs a clean conscience and a revolutionized life and a heart that is right with God. He needs the continuing work of God's grace and of God's mercy and of God's peace in his life, as do your ministers and as do you. Paul undoubtedly expected Timothy to linger over these words. Because I remind you, Timothy is in a battle. And he will need all of these things in order to do battle against that which is false. He will need grace, mercy, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, never miss the personal pronouns. God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Christian faith, as Luther said, the Christian faith is composed of personal pronouns. That we know him ourselves. That we know him personally that we know God's grace and mercy and peace for ourselves. Do you? Now this Timothy, this true child in the faith, don't you think that says something to the ministers of this church and the elders and the deacons and to you? Don't you think that simply the fact that he can say, I'm passing down the torch and the torch goes to this man who is my genuine, legitimate, true child in the faith. Doesn't that say something to us? 
Well, sure it does. It says that we must be captivated by the desire to pass down the faith to faithful men. That's what it says. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, where the same themes are continued in various ways. And look at this very familiar verse, 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 and 2. Addressing him again with affection, the apostle says to Timothy, the young pastor, 2 Timothy 2, 1, You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's his great burden. That's his great concern. That is his great desire. It says to us then that we must labor to produce solid men who can contradict false teaching. Again, verse 3 of chapter 1. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. It says to us that we must pray that the Lord raise up Timothys in the church of Christ today. This young man who was a model of faithfulness. Do we not need men who are models of faithfulness? This young pastor who would do as Paul would do. Do we not need men who would so steep themselves in Paul's life and doctrine that we would do as Paul would do? This young man, Timothy, was faithfully obedient. He was a discerning leader. He was a man of deep conviction. He stood for truth against error. He preached the gospel of sovereign free grace. And if that is not the church's need today, I don't know what is. And we must, each of us, have such reproduction as our goal. On various levels and various ways. Jeff and I want interns. Why? And this is why. Let me say that some of you are extraordinarily gifted to do this. And maybe you need to put your eggs in this basket rather than in some other place. I'll say this personally. I have a concern. I, I trust the Lord, but I have been sharing this concern with elders, praying about it now for a number of years. I really would like to see at some point a young man come along to whom Jeff and I can, can invest our time. And only you can call that young man, but I would hope you would see over time that he's well prepared, that he would say what we would say, do what we would do, lead as we would lead, and that you would want this young Timothy as your pastor. Then I can go to the grave in peace. Let me tell you, I know there are no such things as ghosts, but if God were to make an exception, (laughs) you let me die and go to heaven, you don't follow the truth, I will haunt you. (laughs) I think it's one of the chief concerns that I have. Why? Look. Paul spent three years, Paul, the great apostle, spent three years in Ephesus teaching them, no sooner is he gone than from outside and within, 
false teaching. So if Paul had a concern, you know I have a concern. So we've seen Paul, the one who's passing down the torch. We've seen Timothy, the one to whom he's passing the torch. But now I want to say thirdly another thing. I want to give you some reasons for stressing the pastoral epistles and the life of the church in the 21st century. And let me just give them to you quickly. The reasons for stressing the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy, are these. Because we need to understand the pastoral office. And we need to understand the pastoral office because bad pastors ruin the church. We've seen it time and again through history. Men who don't believe the truth, men who don't uphold the truth, men whose lives are not consistent with the truth. Bad pastors. I didn't say perfect pastors. There's no such thing. Talking about faithful men as opposed to those who aren't faithful, bad pastors ruin the church. In the book of Hebrews, I was noting again this verse. In Hebrews 13, 17... It's a very familiar verse. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for what for that would be of no advantage to you. Uh, the part that I'm really looking at relates to myself. Keeping watch over your souls as those who have to give an account. And yet I am convinced that in America... We have minister after minister in pulpits that don't know Jesus. They're lost men. And we have compromising men. Bad pastors ruin the church. Another reason we need the pastoral epistles is because of the onslaught of modern thought. Now the heresies dealt with in 1 Timothy, Titus, 2 Timothy will be different than well, different in some ways, in the particulars, in some of the heresies with which we are dealing presently in the church today. But nonetheless, what he reveals to us here is applicable to our needs today. The pastoral epistles are about straightforward leadership against false doctrine. And it amazes me how little the church is concerned with this. I really believe... I would love to be wrong, but I really do believe that the average professing Christian in, 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 in the church, the average professing Christian seems almost to despise the word doctrine. I challenge you, take these epistles, read them, and see how often the Apostle Paul uses the term teaching or doctrine. Over and over and over and over again. So we're not prepared to deal with the cults. We're not prepared to deal with theological liberalism because we've given in to the spirit of the age. And the pastoral epistles challenge that at every turn. So you may come to something and you say, you know, if I were God, I would do it differently. Well, you're not God. And this is what his word says. And so we're going to follow his word. You need to submit to the word of God. But because of the onslaught of modern thought, we need the pastoral epistles. You know, does our blood never boil anymore? 
to see Jesus' name blasphemed? To hear false preaching, soul-damning doctrine? Have we been so inspired by the spirit of the age to be tolerant that we can no longer say this is what God's Word says? J.C. Ryle said, Always wanting something new is the mark of a diseased soul. Let me repeat it. Always wanting something new is the mark of a diseased soul. But not only that, we need the pastoral epistles because of the call for the church to be different from the world, in doctrine and in life, in spirit and in ethos. That pervades the pastorals. And we need the pastoral epistles because of God's call to us to pass down the truth to our natural and spiritual children. And I want to park here for a moment. We need the pastoral epistles because of the emphasis on passing down the faith to our natural and our spiritual children. And this is countercultural, absolutely countercultural. Because our culture is concerned, pop culture is concerned with that which is for now. You know, our young people are going to have real thumb problems when they get older. We are just so concerned with what we can have instantly, Google. That's pop culture. That's one of the reasons, by the way, I don't want any of it in worship. It doesn't belong. Worship is concerned with that which builds, with that which has tradition, with that which points us ahead, with that which has a future. Pop culture is right now. We are taught in our culture to think that way. And so we really have to be swimming against stream consciously if we're going to be otherwise. We even have parents that think they can let, we'll just let our children decide about what religion to adopt or whether to follow Christ. That's just sheer Pelagianism. By nature, by birth, original sin, they've already decided not to follow him. We teach them the truth, praying that the Holy Spirit will regenerate their hearts. So I'm afraid that we are abandoning the next generation in the church in our country, and it's going to be the sure death of the church, unless God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, enable us to keep the faith. One of the greatest things happening, and please, I'm not excluding anything else that's great or anything else that's doing a wonderful job. I commend all of you for the wonderful work that you're doing. But let me just say, one of the best things, most wonderful things, greatest things happening in this church are when our little children come on Wednesday nights for catechesis, and they're learning the catechism. I can think of nothing better that will help our children to be prepared for the onslaught of the world than to understand the truth as mediated through that catechism. So we are to pass down with pointed discipleship the faith to our children and to those who come to faith in Christ in our midst. And I'm praying that that will be many, many, many. And this congregation is peculiarly gifted to lead the way in this. We are filled with knowledgeable teachers here. Some of whom need to just say, I'm going to get up and do it. I'm actually going to find a young man and I'm going to disciple him. Some older woman who says, I'm going, to, I'm going to make a relationship with this young woman and I'm going to disciple her. We are peculiarly gifted in this congregation for this.
Our culture is descending into the tomb, people. Our culture is descending into barbarism. And we need men and women who will stand for the truth and teach it to others. So if the church is to preach that full-blooded Christianity of the Bible, it must be taught. You don't just get it by osmosis. You have to teach it. It has to be learned. The Christian faith has to be taught and has to be learned. And that requires energy and effort. And some of you men and women need to put your eggs in that basket. You know, when I was with the women in the church this past Friday night, glorious time. We were thinking together about the ministry of Samuel Davies. I quoted someone about Davies' ministry. When I go among Mr. Davies' people, religion, religion seems to flourish. It is like the suburbs of heaven. And I said to them, that's what I want. I want people to say, when we're around Pastor McWilliams, Pastor McDonald's people, it's, it's like a taste of heaven. These people understand the word, they live the word, it's like the suburbs of heaven. Well, that doesn't just happen. It's the work of the Spirit of God through discipleship, teaching, passing down. And even though Paul the Apostle primarily has in mind passing down to the eldership, that's clear. It's a principle that is broadly applicable. You need, you mature Christians, you need to be passing down the faith. So the question is, will your children know the Lord? Will the faith be passed down to them? Will we be faithful to pass the sacred trust to faithful men who will teach the truth to others? Will our children be like the world? Or will being around them give a foretaste of heaven? And you, here today, lost person, outside of Christ, that you don't know the Lord Jesus, you've never been saved from your sins. Oh, I called you to Christ. Because when we're talking about discipling our children and teaching the truth and false and true doctrine, we are talking about a solemn eternity. We're talking about heaven and hell. We're playing no games here. And you will spend an eternity either in heaven or in hell. Will you enter the stream of believers by personal faith in Jesus Christ? You know, Charles Spurgeon went through a terrific struggle at the end of his ministry in which the Baptist Union, of which he was a part, that in his early days had been very, very sound. By the time he finished his ministry, the whole Baptist Union was liberal or moderate. The moderates always sell the past, by the way. They let the liberals stay. Spurgeon said, On all sides there is a falling away from the truth of the gospel and a tendency to seek out some new thing. He could be describing today. The preacher came to his study in tears. He had started out well, but as he went on, he sacrificed his doctrine of Scripture, weakened in his view of inspiration, weakened in his view of the atonement, began to teach God's blood-bought, redeemed people false doctrine, weeping before Spurgeon for his sin, who called him to repent and go back into the pulpit and preach the truth. Maybe there's someone here... You've weakened too within your heart 
within your soul, within your conscience about these things. Oh, these are just old-fashioned things. We can just get with the spirit of the age. No, no, no. Maybe you need to believe and repent right now, some believer, because you're weakening in your commitment to these great truths of the faith that lead to great living for the faith. Well, that starts us in the pastoral epistles, and I hope that you can see how important they are. And I want your prayers as we move on, that the Lord will use this to make us the kind of church that passes down the torch. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.